If you got a Bible, open it up to Romans chapter eight. We're, we're just teaching through this letter to the Romans, and we've been teaching through it now for, I think this is week 23, which is awesome. And we're gonna wrap up Romans chapter eight next week, and then we'll take a break for four weeks and do a parenting series, and then we'll jump right back in to Romans chapter nine. But in closing out Romans chapter eight, I gotta be honest with you, these are some verses that we're gonna look at today that I have been the most excited to preach about for quite some time. In fact, you might even say it's the whole reason why I wanted to do this series on Romans because Romans chapter eight, and Corey actually mentioned this a few weeks ago, just it's called the greatest chapter in the Bible. And I think because, not only because it says at the beginning, but what it says at the end. And so we're gonna look at just two verses today and just forewarning, that doesn't mean that the sermon's gonna be any shorter, all right? Because uh, these two verses are very dense, and we're going to dig into the meaning of them. Um, but just to recognize as we get into these verses that these verses cause controversy for people. These verses, there's, people have different opinions about. And I want to recognize that, honestly, it's one of the reasons why we're going to pray again in just a second, as we always do, to ask the Lord to help us understand them. But when we talk about these two verses here, there's all kinds of opinions. There's all kinds of thoughts. And some people, you know, uh, on different sides of the issue can get heated and have conversations. And so I want to recognize that. Uh, and do as best as I can by the Spirit, as humbly as I can, to present what I believe that, that Paul is saying here in these texts. And so as we approach this, we all want to approach it humbly and, and come to the text as always and let it speak to us and not just bring our view to it. And so I hope today's sermon is encouraging to you as it is to me. And like I said, I can't wait to preach it because I just love these two verses. And so let's pray and ask God to bless us and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for loving us and thank you for just how you've worked in our lives. And as we're gonna see today, the promise of Romans 8.28, that you are working all things together for good, rests on the foundation of verses 29 and 30. And as we open this text, God, I pray that you would open our eyes, our ears to see the truth in it because we know without your Holy Spirit, God, we are dead. And so we pray that you would not only help us to see it, but you would help us to love it. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So I'm gonna back up one verse to Romans 8, 28, just in case you weren't here last week, but we ended the sermon last week on 28, and it's one of the greatest promises in the Bible. Uh, arguably, it's one of those verses that so many people know, like Jeremiah 29, 11. So this is kind of like the New Testament equivalent of, of this just an incredible promise. And we should know it. We should memorize it. But what most people don't do is they don't read past 28, or if they do, they just kind of like, I don't know what that means, and they just move on to verse 31. But verse 28 rests on the foundation of 29 and 30. And so what makes the promise of 28 work is the verses of 29 and 30. And even though they cause confusion for us a lot of times, I hope today to help as best I possibly can by the Spirit of God to clear that up. But Romans 8.28 says this again. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And so Paul says, we know all things, and we talked about last week, all things includes bad things, because that's what he talked about in the 10 verses prior to this, from verse 17 down to verse 27, that we go through suffering. And so synergistically, we talk about how all things, even negative things and us, work together for good. And so God is working all those things, and he says, for those who are called according to his purpose. Then in verse 29, he's going to get into unpacking what he means by this phrase here, those who are called, because you're going to see that word again. So let's jump into verse 29, and you'll understand why some people have a lot of confusion over these verses. It says, for, now I've told you this, anytime a sentence starts with the word for or therefore, you always have to ask yourself the question, what is it 
What is it there for, right? So it's referencing back for, that's true, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So stop and chat here for a little while. These two words, foreknowledge and predestination, again, not only do they cause a lot of confusion, but they cause a lot of arguments and people have all kinds of viewpoints on them. But they are in the Bible. And so you cannot say, and maybe some of you have said this, is like, I don't believe in predestination. Well, it's in the Bible, so you have to believe it. And, and I hope to show you today that this isn't a bad word. This isn't a dirty word. In fact, I think this is an amazing word because what you're going to see here in verse 29 and 30 is five verbs all active of what God is doing. So Paul says in Romans 8, 28, he's working all things together for good. And then he gives us two verses where he says five different words that God is doing to work things together for good. The first two, he says, he, those he foreknew, he predetermined or he predestined. So let's talk to, talk to those two words. The first one, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of confusion on both of them, but the first one, the meaning of the word is not as straightforward as the second word of predestination. Because predestination, as it comes over into English, is pretty straightforward. Pre meaning before, destination means to determine an end. But the word foreknowledge can mean a couple different things. Most people, and in fact, if you were just to do a survey, what most people would think about the word foreknowledge is some variation of this, that God from eternity past, because God's always existed, there's never been a time that he hasn't existed, that God knows everything, so he looked forward for, he looked forward and he saw every human being that would ever choose him. He has the knowledge of everybody's decisions. And so he saw those that would choose him and he saw those that would not choose him. And based upon those future decisions that we would make, then he predetermined their destination because of the choice that they would make. So most people see foreknowledge as a reference to something God knows kind of informationally in the future. But I've told you often different Greek words mean different things. And, and in English, we may just have one word like love. We have one word for it, but there's all different kinds of loves that the Bible talks about. Same with the word knowledge. So this word here, knowledge, is not just God knows something in the future, although that is true. God is omniscient. He knows everything. God has never said, you know what I just thought of? Like he's never done that because he does know everything. But this context of this word here is not talking about all the choices of all humanity in the future. This word here, knowledge, is a reference to those God loves. Because I've told you the word know can mean just to know information or it can be to know somebody, which implies relationship. And the Bible uses this word a lot, particularly in the context of marriage, to describe an intimate relationship. So when someone says, I know somebody, you're like, well, how do you know them? You just know about them, or do you know them? You're in relationship with them. You know, in our world today, we follow all these people on social media, like, I know him. Yeah, but if they don't know you, you don't know them, right? Like, you're not in intimate relationship with each other. And so this word here, foreknowledge, is talking about those who God knows in a relationship sense. So a better way to actually say this would be 
those whom God foreloved. Those whom God foreloved. And everything else that follows, the four other things that Paul's going to say is going to reference the things that he does for those he loves. That's what Paul's getting at. So this is not talking about God knowing all decisions that people are going to make and then making determinations based upon their decisions. Paul's saying those that God loved first, those that God loved beforehand, those that God foreknew, he knew them, he loved them. Then he does these things. So those that he loves, he predetermines. Now, here's the other, again, people misunderstand often this phrase of predetermination or predestination. And we'll get into free will in just a second, so hang with me. But one thing I want to point out is most people miss what it is those God loves, he predestines them to. Again, this is only talking about people that God loves, that he determines a destination for those that he loves. And what is that? Look back at the text. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, capital S, which is Jesus. So don't miss this. When God loves you, he makes a decision that he is going to make sure that your destination is to look like Jesus. And this is why, honestly, I gotta be straight with you. I don't understand. And again, I wanna approach this as humbly as possible, but I would just like to submit, I don't understand a lot of times why people don't like this doctrine. I don't understand why people are like, I don't want God predetermined in something. You know what I would say? No, I want God to make sure that I make, that one day I look like Jesus. Because I can't do that on my own. I need all the help I can get, yo. I mean, I mean for real. I, I am so glad that God loved me first, which is what Paul said in Romans 5, 8. We did this a few, uh, few months ago now. We says, for, uh, God loved us so much. He showed his love to us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the very simple thing that Paul's saying is, listen, before you loved him, he loved you. He loved first. He is first and he went first. And for those he loves, he determines their destination and their destination is to be like Jesus. That is such good news to me because there is so often in my walk with Jesus, I wonder if I will ever look like him. I wrestle and struggle, as Paul says in Romans 7, that, that Corey hit a few weeks ago about our wrestle with sin. I struggle with sin. There's so often I wonder, like, I don't even know if I love God. I don't even know, like, I mean, I mean, I think I'm just worse off than I was before. But I can take great comfort in verses like this to say, no, no, no. Not only did God love me first, but in his love for me, he determined my destination. And so even though I may feel like I'm not on the right road to becoming like Christ, God's going to make sure that I get there. God's going to make sure that I am conformed into the image of his son. Now, again, this is what makes this so glorious. You know, Pastor David a few weeks ago talked in Romans 8 about how we are adopted into God's family. And that's great. And he said, but, but wait, there's more. And here's what Paul said, but wait, there's more. Because see, we have a daughter that's adopted and we adopted her into our family. So she has the same legal right as my son who is born DNA wise out of our family. I'm the birth father, but my daughter has a different birth father and a different birth mother. We are the real mom and dad, but she doesn't have our DNA, which in some way that's a great blessing to her, right? <laughs> Let's be straight. But here's what Paul's getting at. Not only did God adopt you into his family legally, but he's actually going to transform your DNA too. 
See, that's different than human adoption. My, my daughter is who she is. She's a part of our family. She's my daughter, but she doesn't have my DNA. But here's what Paul's going. He's saying, listen, he didn't just legally adopt you. He's conforming you from the inside out so that you also look like him. See, see Natalie doesn't, you can clap for that, like all four of you. That's fantastic, all right? <laughs> it's a great point to clap right there, all right? Natalie's my daughter, but she doesn't look like me. She's beautiful, but she doesn't, she doesn't have my DNA. But here's what Paul's saying. He didn't just do that. He's going to make sure that you actually look like Jesus too. He's going to make sure that he didn't just forgive your sin. He's going to make sure that one day you don't even have the ability to sin. He's conforming you from the inside out. Your destination is to look like Jesus and so the activity of God, of what Paul is saying, is how can I trust that God is going to work all things together for good? How can you trust that? Because God's actively working. God's actively choosing. Now, before we get into the definitions of free will, another thing I want to say quickly. We have got to approach the Bible very humbly. Because when we talk about God's activity and God's choices, we need to understand something that we are not on the same level as God. We are not on the same level as God. Isaiah says very clearly, his ways are higher than ours. His thoughts are higher than ours. And so there are going to be things that God does you don't understand. Have you gotten that one yet? You will not understand it. And so when people say, well, I can't worship a God if I don't understand him, for real? If I understand him, then that means he's as smart as me. And if that's the problem, we got problems. I mean, if that's the issue, we got problems. I want a God that's way smarter that I don't understand. And so you're going to have to become comfortable with mystery. You're going to reach a level of human knowledge, and then you'll get into God's realm. It's like I told my son uh, this last week, we were having a discussion that could have turned into an argument, but I'm an expert parent. And so... Um, <laughs> I de-escalated it quickly, which is why you should come in two weeks. We do our parenting series. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but this was one of those like moments of just sheer genius. And, and that's how you know it didn't come from me. It came from Jesus, right? And so we got into this little discussion and Lindsay was in the room. And, and before it got escalated, Lindsay, which is what she does, she kind of calmed it down. And then she walked out. And then Jackson was going to walk out. I'm like, come here, bro. We got to have a little conversation. And I was calm. And I was nice. I said, listen, I need you to understand something. I love you but we are not equals. We're not equals. And he kind of looked at me. I said, me and your mom, we're equal. Me and you, we're not. I'm ahead. I'm above. I was here first. You came later. So what that means is my word carries more weight. I said, I want you to have an opinion. And when you share your opinion with me, I'll listen to it. I need to assimilate it. But do not respond back to my opinion as though your opinion is the same as mine. Yes, sir. And I got a great kid by the grace of God. We went on. And it was in that moment I felt like the Holy Spirit reminded me, that's right, Jason, and you and I aren't equal. I'm ahead. You're not. You want to know why I told my son that? Because when he leaves my house, I want him to know that him and God aren't equal. There is a God and it is not him. And this is when we wrestle with free will. And here's what you need to know. 
God made human beings with the ability to choose. We are free to choose. I'll show you how in a second. But God has never made an autonomous human being, ever. What does autonomous mean? Autonomous means the right to self-govern. Again, let's use parenting. When you had a child, did they have the right to govern themselves? If they did, you really need to come in two weeks. No, they did not have the right to govern themselves. They didn't get to make up their own rules. That's what self-government means. Now, the country, we are a self-governing country. Yes and amen. But when it comes to the creator, we need to understand that as a country, all that needs to be based upon what God tells us, which is why our country has been so great. So when we approach God, we are not equals with him. He has the right to command, and we have the right to choose whether or not we obey that command. Does that make sense? We're on the same ground here. We're not equals, but God's choices and God's actions does not cancel out our choices. So what might be an apparent contradiction in your mind is not in his. So now let's get into the definition of free will. I'm going to give you two definitions of free will. One is a humanistic perspective. One is a biblical perspective. And this is where most people, when we start talking about the subjects of foreknowledge and predestination, their first response is, what about free will? What about human choice? And I want you to understand something. We have to be so careful not to bring a worldly viewpoint to the Bible. Because most of us, we've gone through this period of enlightenment where human beings' knowledge has increased faster and faster and faster. We have access to everything, so therefore, we feel very enlightened. And and all that is right and good. I'm I'm all for knowledge. I'm all for learning. I I have a master's degree. But here's what we need to understand. We can be so influenced by the thought processes of our world that we bring that into the text, and we then start judging God based upon the world's viewpoint. And that's just simply not biblical. Now, listen, I, I understand this, and I live in the same culture as you live into, but we have to understand that when we think about the concept of free will, we might be unbiblical in how we're thinking about it. So let me give you the two concepts. Here's the humanistic idea of free will. The humanistic idea of free will is we have an equal ability to do what is sinful and what is righteous based upon what we want. Now, I'm a psychology minor in college. I love psychology. I love sociology. I love anthropology. Anything about the study of human beings and the mind, I'm all over. I mean, I'm in the people business. And so I love studying that a lot because it helps me understand myself. And so there was a lot of classes in psychology that I mean, I just ate up because I wanted to learn the history of human thought and how we think about ourselves and how we process and all this kind of stuff. But one of the things that is very prevalent in our humanistic view of the world is every human being we think humanistically is born what is called philosophically as a tabula rasa, tabula, you know what I'm saying, Blank slate. That's I'm trying to say Latin, all right? We, most people think we're born as a blank slate. And we have the ability to choose right or choose wrong based upon what we want most. But you need to understand something. When you take that viewpoint and you bring it into the text, that applied to two people in human history and two people alone. 
We talked about this months ago. It applied to Adam and it applied to Jesus. When God created humanity, he gave human beings the choice. Here's the law, you choose. So Adam had the ability to sin or not to sin. He had the ability to sin or not to sin. We all know the story. What did he choose? Chose to sin. And when he chose to sin, the Bible says, it calls it the fall. Now, the fall of mankind didn't mean that man is just now sick. The Bible says, no, man is now dead spiritually. And what does that mean? It means that mankind now no longer has the ability to not sin. You no longer have the ability to not sin. All of our choices are not deciding between doing right or doing wrong, not following God or not. All of our choices now are sinful. That's the biblical idea of free will. So let me give you that definition. We are free to choose. In the biblical concept of free will, we are free to choose. Don't misunderstand me. God does not coerce you to choose. You are free to choose based upon what you want or what we want, but. Conjunction, junction, what's your function, right? Best word in the Bible, B-U-T, because it tells us the bad news and it tells us the good news. But we are dead in sin, so listen to me, so we would never choose God if God did not give us a new will, now don't miss this, that wants to choose him. So you are free to choose. God's choices does not cancel out your choices. You are free to choose. The Bible is not anti-free will. The Bible says both. You are a moral agent. You will be held responsible for your choices. But here's what the Bible says. You will never choose God left to yourself. Why? Because you're dead, spiritually speaking, in trespasses and sins. So now you and I do not have the ability to not sin. Adam had the ability to sin or not sin. He chose to sin. Christ had the ability to sin or not sin. He chose to not sin, but he died as a sinner to pay the price for Adam's sin. The only two people that had that choice, one chose wrongly by God's grace, Jesus came and he chose rightly. You and I, we don't have that choice. You want, to, you want me to prove this to you? I say this often. Did you have to teach your kids to sin? Did you have to teach your kid how to say mine? Your precious little baby boy, who's really, let's be honest, the spawn of Satan, which is you. <laughs> you. They got it natural from you. And here's all that Paul is saying. Here's all that the Bible is saying. You can't choose God. You don't have the ability to. You say, where does it say that? Let's back right up into Romans 8. Corey preached this a few weeks ago, Romans 8, 7 through 8. You can just back right on up there in the same chapter. I got it here on the screen. Look at what Paul says. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it, what's that next word there? Cannot. Let's try that again like you believe it, all right? Indeed, it what? Cannot. You're going to have to say it again. Those who are in the flesh, what's the next word there? Cannot. Cannot, please God. When you can't do something, 
Can you do it? <laughs> it was easy. Come on. No. And this is where we got corrected in like second and third grade, because back in my day, we had pencil sharpeners. Remember when you had pencil sharpeners like in the front or back of the room? You're like, miss, uh, can, can I go sharpen my pencil? And your quick-witted teacher says, I don't know, can you? <laughs> right? And you're like, may I? See, may has to do with permission. Can has to do with ability. And I still have to be corrected for that. And now I, I, you know, I grew up to be what I didn't like as a kid, right? Now I correct my kids. Can I do this? I don't know. Can you? May I? But he didn't say here that indeed it may not. In that it doesn't have the permission to. What does he say? Cannot. What does that mean? Doesn't have the ability to. See, Paul says the mind, mind is where you make decisions. We talk about will. What do you want to do? The mind set on the flesh cannot, does not have the ability to submit to God's law. So in the flesh, no one can, cannot please God. And see, elsewhere, the Bible says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So here's the question. Can my flesh produce faith that pleases God? According to Paul, no. Now, this is where people are like, well, what did Jesus say? Uh, this happens all the time. I mean, you take, uh, there's so many cultural current examples. I just don't have any time to get into. The, the response to people will say, well, Jesus didn't even talk about that. I mean, I know the rest of the Bible does, but Jesus didn't, as if the red letters mean something different, which I always tell people, listen, Holmes, he wrote the whole book. Some of it came out of his words at a, as, a, as a human that somebody else wrote down, and some of it was inspired through the Holy Spirit through somebody else that they wrote down. All of it's his word, though. And John, in his gospel, John 21, says, listen, there was so much more we could have wrote down, but we wrote these things down, these things down for you to believe. But if we would have wrote it all down, it would have outnumbered the, the grains on the seashore. So there are things that the Bible talks about that Jesus himself may not talk about. And people are like, well, Jesus didn't say it, I don't believe it. Well, he said it. He either said it in person or he said it to another person, but the whole book is his word. But here's the thing. In this instance, he did say it. He did say it. You want to know where Paul got his theology from? Jesus. J-E-S-U-S. You don't have to turn there quickly, but you can write it down as a reference. I do have it on the screen. John 6, 44. Twice in chapter 6, Jesus says this. John records it. Here's Jesus. No one. What's the next word there? Let's try it again. No one what? Now, does can mean may? So Jesus didn't say no one may come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No, Jesus says no one can. You want to know what's crazy? That word there can, the same exact Greek word is Romans chapter eight. No one can. No one has the ability. So you can read it as no one has the ability to come to me unless. Another conjunction. <laughs> what's your function? What's your function? Your function is to give me to Jesus. Unless. Unless, what is the, this is what's called in, in logic, a necessary condition. No one can unless this condition is met. And what is this condition? The father who sent me draws him. 
and I will raise him up on the last day. So here's what I'm saying to you. Very simply, when it comes to the concept of free will, it's not at odds with God's foreknowledge and predestination choices because you and I, left to ourselves, would never, ever choose God because we can't. So here's simply all Paul is saying. God enables you to choose him. He gives you a new will that wants to. Now, Quick word, again, I don't have time to get into all of this, and there's no way in a 30-minute sermon that I could address something that for thousands of years people have debated. I just want to hit the high point so that we can have a better understanding. What's at issue here, or what's at, at, at debate here, is, is what uh, Luther called ordus salutis. It is Latin for the order of salvation. Everybody agrees, every Protestant that came out of the Protestant Reformation, which Baptists, Lutherans, Methodists, whatever, all of them agree that God and man make choices. Everybody agrees. No one discounts the fact that no one comes to God unless God is involved. But people interpret this verse of 644 in different ways. When it says draws, some people interpret that verse to say God is wooing them, saying, come on, come on, you can do it, you can do it. Here I am, here I am, come on. And this word used elsewhere isn't translated draw, it's translated drag. And the idea is that God compels it. Now, there are instances that this word is used in other Greek literature where it's a reference to someone drawing water out of a well. And so sometimes the argument is, see, it can be used as draw, but every other instance is used as drag, compelled, enabled. But when you get water out of a well, how do you get it out? Um, do y'all even know what a well is? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Do you say, here, water, water, here, water, water, Or do you send the bucket down by your actions and scoop it up and get it out? See, at issue here is the order. No one debates that faith and regeneration or rebirth are necessary. No one debates that. What people debate is which comes first, chicken or the egg. And this is where well-meaning people are like, it don't matter. They're both involved. Well, I get the heart of that, but it does matter because what I'm arguing to you, and, and if you want to know where I land, is regeneration precedes faith because regeneration is God enabling me by giving me a new will, a new want to, to choose him. And then I choose. I respond in faith. I pray. I do. I make the choice, but now I want to where before I wasn't able to. But some people say, no, faith precedes re regeneration. That a person chooses and then God works. Listen, both of those views, and I want you to hear me say this, both of those views are within Orthodox Christianity. Very well-meaning people, depending upon the tribe that you come from or grew out of or read, will argue one side or the other. I'm arguing for one side or the other. But here's what I'm saying to you. They both are necessary. Faith, regeneration. But just as I read this text, what I see is that God moves first. Because left to myself, I would never choose him. 
And that is what gives me so much hope. And this is the part that I think people miss. Look at verse 30. I mean, that was just like the first half of the sermon. I got two minutes left. But we'll go quickly for verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is called the golden chain. Five things that God does here. Foreknow, predetermine, call, justify, glorify. Referring back to eternity past. And also, this is the part I want to highlight now. Referring forward to eternity future. Notice that he speaks of glorification in the past tense. Glorified. Those whom God loved, he determined to be conformed to the image of his son. So he called them, he justified them, saved them, and he glorified them. God already speaks about my future glorification in the past tense. And it hasn't happened yet. Because God is omniscient. He's all things at all times in all places and knows all things. That is how he can work all things together for good. Because he sees the future as though it's past. He's not concerned. And you want to know why that gives me so much hope? And this is why I'm preaching this text to you today. Because I want you to have hope. Sometimes I wonder if I'm still headed for the right destination. You ever felt like that? You ever, you ever read, let me, let me do it like this. You ever read Romans 8, 28, and you read, for those who love God, all things work together. Have you ever thought to yourself, the reason why things aren't working out is I don't love God enough? If we were honest, I think every hand in this room would go up. Every hand at both locations would go up and say, yeah, there's been so many times where I have questioned if I really loved God, then this would have worked out. So therefore, since it didn't work out, I must not love God enough. So I need to love God. And that's why some of you are in church today. You're here to love God more. And that's not bad in and of itself. But here's what I want you to understand. You don't need to love God more. You need to learn to let God love you more. See, if I want to create a healthy environment, again, we'll talk about this more in parenting. If I want to create a healthy environment in my kids. I will not base my happiness on my kids' ability to love me. Because that is a weight that if I hang around their neck, they will crumble under. So the best way to raise healthy, adjusted kids is not for them to feel like they have to love me. But the best way to create healthy, well-adjusted kids is for them to know that no matter what, I love them. Because I was first, and I loved them first. Natalie and I, my nine-year-old daughter, have this conversation all the time because I try to tell her on the daily, Natalie, I love you. And she'll say, I love you too. And I'll say, I love you more. And then she'll say, no, I love you more. And then I'll say, that's not possible. Because when you were still in the womb, I loved you. And you didn't even know what love, you didn't even know what light was. And then when you were born, all you wanted to do is poop in your pants and suck your thumbs. And you don't even know what love was, but I loved you first. I didn't have kids for them to love me. I had kids for me to love them. And that's what Paul's saying. Just because things aren't working out right now, it doesn't mean that you don't love God enough. Because the chain is unbreakable. 
This is, and we'll get into this next week, verse 31, that everybody loves. If God is for me, who can be against me? Don't you love that verse? More than the conqueror. Yeah, you wanna know why? Because you got God as your dad. And I say this often, but I got a big dad. Even at 67, I still will not challenge him because he, I, I tried it once when I was 17 and he caught me. I'm like, no, that's it. He knocked my horse unconscious. He's 67, and, and I believe that song. He's not as good as he once was, but he's as good once as he ever was, and I ain't challenging him. <laughs> but, so I believe my dad can beat up your dad. Straight up. That's how I got through preschool. <laughs> Wait till my dad comes, sucker. That's what Paul's saying. If God who loved you and has fixed your destination to be like Christ and has called you and justified you and will glorify you, if he is on your side, what can man do to you? You need to wake up in the morning and not look in the mirror and say, doggone it, people like you. You need to say, no, God likes you. The God of all creation loves you and is with you and is for you and is working all things together for good. See, the promise of 828 falls apart without 29 and 30. Because if God is working real hard, and I mean, he's, he's trying real hard, but he's over in Africa right now, and he'll get to you next year. He ain't Santa Claus. People are like, should I tell my kids about Santa Claus? I don't care. Just tell them about Jesus. He's so much better. He's all places at all times, knows all things, and is working all things together for your good. Can you tell I get excited about this? Come on, somebody. And people are like, oh, I, I just don't know. Man. I don't know about you, but I was dead and my trespasses and sins. But God made me alive. And when he made me alive, alive, I couldn't resist it. This is where people are like, I don't, I don't like the fact that you can't resist God. Oh, you can resist him. People do it all the time. But when Jesus called out Lazarus from the grave, did Lazarus sit there and think, I don't know if I want to get up? <laughs> no. Why? Because dead people don't think Now, when Jesus said, Lazarus, come out, made alive, then he started choosing. That's all I'm saying to you. Aren't you so grateful that when you were dead, God said, come out. And then you started choosing in faith and were saved. Let's pray before I go another hour. <laughs> Father, thank you so much for loving us. You loved us before we ever loved you. And God, I know we wrestle with this concept of our free will and your choice, but God, the simple truth of the matter is if you left us alone and just judged us for our sin, you would be right to do so, but you didn't. 
And we don't understand how it all works together. But we know that there is no injustice in you. And so if you judge somebody for their sinful choices, you are right to do something. And if you give mercy to somebody, then you are right to do so. But God, we thank you so much that you showed your love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died. You moved first. And so we just wanna honor that. And God, I know there are some people here today that by your Holy Spirit, you've drawn them in. You've opened their eyes to see the truth. You said, come out, and now they have an opportunity to respond in faith and be saved and be justified and be glorified. And so God, I pray right now that you would do that. Draw people to yourself. Nobody looking around or talking here as we close. If you want to respond in faith because God has opened your eyes to see the truth and be saved, I'm gonna simply give you an opportunity to do so and pray, not out loud, but repeat after me. It goes like this. Say, Father, I respond now and choose you. Ask you to save me, forgive me, Thank you so much for loving me that you sent Christ to die for me. I ask you to save me. Give me life. And conform me into the image of your son. Thank you so much for loving me. Nobody else looking around or, or talking, but if you just prayed that with me very simply, would you lift your hand so we can see that? We wanna celebrate with you. Thank you, thank you. We got men and women gonna walk around, put a gift in your hand. When they do, you can put it down. But then those of us who have trusted Christ, two things I wanna to say to you. One is if you love somebody that is not currently following Jesus, this is the greatest news you could ever hear. Because what it means is that God can overcome their resistance to him. So pray for that. God is sovereign. And he can draw anybody to himself. So pray that he would overcome their resistance. Fast and pray that God would open their eyes to see the truth about who he is. And the second thing I want to say to you is if you're trusting Jesus and following Jesus... When you are so discouraged by your own sinful choices or other people's sinful choices against you that have created suffering, when you are so discouraged in either one of those ways, know that God is working all things together for good. And sometimes we just live in a simple fallen world where bad things happen, but we can still trust God. And the only hope that we have is that God is active in determining things to work together. So I hope today has been hopeful to you based upon the word of God. Father, we pray that you would apply this to us, not only today, but every day and remind us that even though we feel like we haven't reached the destination, it's as good as done as you're in your mind. And you will, what you started, you will finish because you're not only the author, but you're the perfecter of our faith. 
And so God, we thank you so much for working in us to conform us into the image of Jesus because we look forward to the day that when we are glorified and we will no longer have the ability to sin, we will only obey because we have a resurrected body. We look forward to that day in Jesus' name, amen.